0: This is Memory and Top 40 Music, and in this episode, we're looking at the top 10 songs from August 28, 1963, the day of the famous March on Washington, which brought us the I Have a Dream speech by Dr. Martin Luther King. The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom was designed to encourage America's leaders to take the steps necessary to ensure the civil and economic rights of African Americans. This coming a full century after President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. I'm Spoken Joe Williams. Thanks for coming along as we revisit the top of the pop charts through the eyes of history on the day of this historic event in Washington, D.C. August 28, 1963, Wednesday. It was a surprisingly pleasant late August day in the nation's capital, with 83-degree temperatures and lower humidity. The American Civil Rights Movement had been going on for decades. Following the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the United States Constitution, known as the Reconstruction Amendments, were intended to transform the U.S. from a country that was, as Lincoln said, half-slave and half-free to one in which all peoples would enjoy the constitutionally guaranteed blessings of liberty. Those amendments abolished slavery, addressed citizenship rights and equal protection for everyone, and prohibited voting rights discrimination on the basis of race or color, but not based on gender. Women didn't have the right to vote in the U.S. until the 19th Amendment in 1920. And these amendments worked for a while. But in the late 19th century, what were known as Jim Crow laws were enacted by state and local governments which enforced racial segregation, or separation. Segregation dictated where non-white people could sit, dine, sleep, get educated, vote, be buried, or play baseball. You may know that actress Hattie McDaniel was the first Black Academy Award winner for her role in the film Gone with the Wind, but you probably don't know she was not allowed to attend the film's premiere in Georgia due to segregation. In what was a slow and in many cases a violent and deadly process, the civil rights movement sought to gain or regain the rights and protection intended by the Reconstruction Amendments. The Supreme Court decision in Plessy v. Ferguson sanctioned separate but equal, and the federal government was also segregated. The court ruled in 1954, in Brown v. Board of Education, that public school segregation was unconstitutional, but it would still be years before full school integration occurred across the country. Fourteen-year-old Emmett Till was murdered in Mississippi for allegedly interacting with a white woman. Rosa Parks was arrested for not giving up her seat on a public bus to a white passenger. These events, and numerous others, led to debates over violent versus nonviolent protests, Plus, there were sit-ins at lunch counters and theaters and libraries. There were freedom rides, which tested the U.S. Supreme Court decision ruling segregation of passengers in interstate travel was unconstitutional. And the list goes on. Before we go on with the March on Washington, why don't we get to the music charts on that day, August 28, 1963. Six of our ten songs this week are at their peak chart positions, and that includes the song that will get us kicked off, the number ten song, Denise, by Randy and the Rainbows. Randy and the Rainbows were a five-man doo-wop group from Queens, New York. The group featured Ken Arkapowski, the Zero Brothers, Mike and Sal, and the Sofuto Brothers, Frank and Dominic, the latter otherwise known as Randy. Randy and the Rainbows emanated from the group The Dialtones and had a brief chart career. Denise was their first song to hit the charts, and it was a big one. Though it took seven weeks for the song to crack the top 40, four weeks later, this week in fact, it reached the top 10, where it would camp out for two weeks before sliding back down. Denise spent 10 weeks in the top 40 in 1963. Any fans of hit songs from the early 60s will recognize Denise immediately. Check it out on our companion Spotify playlist for this episode of Memory and Top 40 Music. Their next song, Why Do Kids Grow Up, spent two weeks in the Hot 100 later in 1963. Randy and the Rainbows had numerous other releases, none of which charted. However, the group toured for years with the likes of Tony Orlando, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, The Beach Boys, and The Four Seasons. Deborah, Harry, and Blondie released a version of this song in 1978 and called it Denis. We've also included that version on our companion playlist. It reached number two on the British charts. Getting our countdown underway from August 28, 1963, it's Randy and the Rainbows and their biggest hit, Denise, at number 10, up from number 15, one week ago. I'm Spoken Joe Williams and you're listening to Memory and Top 40 Music, where we relive our best memories through the greatest songs ever recorded. I mentioned this episode's companion playlist on Spotify. All of this week's top 10 songs are included, along with a bunch of extras for your enjoyment. You can pay for an ad-free account, but frankly, the free Spotify account will suit you perfectly. In this episode, we're looking at August 28, 1963, the day of the historic March on Washington. I want to introduce a couple of names here, Asa Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin. These men were the principal organizers of the 1963 March on Washington. Randolph, a native of Crescent City, Florida, moved to Harlem, where he co-founded an employment agency and attempted to organize black workers. Randolph created the first successful trade union for blacks, and he and Rustin planned to lead 100,000 black workers in a march on Washington, D.C. on July 1, 1941, to protest discriminatory hiring by U.S. military contractors. In response, President Franklin Roosevelt issued an executive order outlawing discrimination in defense industries and federal bureaus and created the Fair Employment Practices Committee. The planned protest march of 1941 was called off. Bayard Rustin from Westchester, Pennsylvania, organized the Congress on Racial Equality in 1941. In the 1950s, Rustin became an advisor to young civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., and was the primary organizer of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Randolph and Rustin have since each been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Randolph and Rustin were among the organizers of the Prayer Pilgrimage for Freedom in the nation's capital in 1957. This three-hour demonstration on April 5, 1957, featured Dr. King as the last speaker and was the event which brought him to national attention. Planning for the 1963 Washington March began in December 1961, with the original plan calling for two days of protest, including sit ins and lobbying, then a large rally at the Lincoln Memorial. The focus was to be on joblessness, with a call for a public works program that would employ blacks. Guess who's at number nine this week? It's Elvis with You're the Devil in Disguise. You look like an angel. Walk like an angel, talk like an angel, but I got wise. You're the devil in disguise. This was Elvis Presley's 55th top 40 song on the Billboard pop charts. It followed One Broken Heart for Sale, which made it to number 11 in February, and preceded Witchcraft, a number 32 song in November. You're the devil in disguise was Elvis' 31st top 10 hit. There was a TV show in Britain called Jukebox Jury the show featured a panel of celebrity guests who rated new songs as a hit or a miss. Based on the published celebrity juror lists, it looks like it was on the June 29, 1963 program on which Elvis' new song, You're the Devil in Disguise, was evaluated. And guest juror John Lennon gave it a miss and said Elvis was like Bing Crosby now on his new song. Lennon's evaluation apparently didn't hurt the song much as it reached number one in the UK. In fact, it also hit number one in Belgium, Canada, Finland, France, Ireland, the Netherlands, and Norway. It peaked at number 3 in the US for 2 weeks in August, and it dropped 6 slots from that high position of number 3 last week to this week's number 9 position. The song was a bit of a meteor in the US. It was in the top 40 for 8 weeks, 6 of which were in the top 10. By the first week of September, it would be out of the top 40. You're the Devil in Disguise was the last of Presley's songs to hit the top 10 on the Rhythm and Blues chart. 63 was another busy year for Elvis. He filmed three movies that year, Fun in Acapulco, Viva Las Vegas with Ann-Margaret, and Kissin' Cousins. He also received his second-degree black belt in October and carried the card in his wallet until the day he died. Elvis Presley and You're the Devil in Disguise coming in this week at number 9. By 1963, the civil rights movement was growing quickly in action, demonstrations, and opposition. As we said at the outset, 1963 marked the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. On June 11th, President John Kennedy addressed a national TV audience and announced he would begin to push for civil rights legislation. That very night, civil rights activist Medgar Evers was murdered in his driveway in Mississippi. As part of the preparation for the March on Washington, six civil rights leaders formed the Council for United Civil Rights Leadership. Philip Randolph, who would lead the march, James Farmer of the Congress of Racial Equality, John Lewis of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Martin Luther King of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, and Whitney Young of the National Urban League. Eventually, four white supporters were added, Walter Ruther of the United Auto Workers, Eugene Carson Blake of the National Council of Churches, Matthew Amon of the National Catholic Conference for Interracial Justice, and Joaquin Prinz of the American Jewish Congress. This larger group of leaders met with President Kennedy on June 22, agreeing to rule out civil disobedience as a component of the upcoming march. And on July 17, President Kennedy spoke favorably of the planned march. Inching up one notch this week to number eight is the song More by Kai Winding and his orchestra. In 1962, a trio of Italian filmmakers released a movie entitled Mondo Cane. It was a documentary-style film and has been referred to as a shockumentary because its footage showed mankind's bizarre rights, cruel behavior, and animal slaughter. It was a big international hit. Its theme song was More, for which English lyrics were written by Norman Newell. The song was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song. I know most of you will recognize it when you hear the tune. Here are the opening lines. More than the greatest love the world has known, this is the love I give to you alone. More than the simple words I try to say, I only live to love you more each day. Kai Winding's version of More is an instrumental and was the only hit single of his career, the song spent nine weeks in the top 40, with this week finding more sitting at number eight, the highest spot it would attain on the pop charts. It would spend four weeks in the top 10 and did make it all the way up to number two on the adult contemporary chart. More has been recorded by, well, just about everybody. Vic Damone, Frank Sinatra, Bobby Darin, Glenn Campbell, Duke Ellington, Nat King Cole, Andy Williams, Roy Orbison, Shirley Bassey, Tom Jones, Booker T and the MGs, Doris Day, Herb Alpert, Connie Francis. I think you get the idea. We've included Sinatra's version on the companion playlist for this episode. As for Kai Winding, he was a Danish-born trombone player whose family moved to New York when he was 12. Winding served in the U.S. Coast Guard during World War II. After the war, he joined Benny Goodman's orchestra and went on to play with numerous others over the years, including Quincy Jones, Stan Kenton, and Sarah Vaughan. Winding's recording of "More" may have been the first time an andioline was featured in an American record. The andioline is a French electronic instrument, something like a keyboard, and was a forerunner of the synthesizer. Kai Winding died in 1983 at the age of 61, and this week his recording of "More" is the number eight song. I'm Joe Williams, and you're listening to Memory and Top 40 Music, and we're taking a walk through the top of the chart from August 28, 1963. It's time for our Memory Jogger feature, and in this installment of Memory Jogger, we'll remember a few key music figures who recently passed, starting with country singer Daryl Singletary. Singletary had three top ten country singles, Too Much Fun, I Let Her Lie, and Amen Kind of Love. He also made a brief appearance on the Hot 100 in 1998 with The Note, Songwriter Ron Dunbar died on April 3rd. He co-wrote hits such as Give Me Just a Little More Time, a number 3 hit for the Chairman of the Board, Band of Gold, a number 3 hit for Free to Pain, and Patches, a number 4 hit for Clarence Carter. Each of those songs hit the charts in 1970. Patches won a Grammy Award for Best R&B Song. Yvonne Staples of the Staples Singers died on April 17, 2018. Roebuck, Pops, Staples, and his daughters, Mavis, Cleo, and Yvonne, comprised the staple Singers. Yvonne wasn't in the group originally. She replaced her brother, Purvis. Meeting Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. after he attended one of their shows, the staple Singers went on to perform at a number of Dr. King's events. They recorded several civil rights songs, including March Up Freedom's Highway, about the 1965 Selma to Montgomery, Alabama marches. It wasn't until nearly 20 years after they began their recording career that the Staples Singers found commercial success on the pop charts. The group had a string of top 40 hits starting with 1971's Heavy Makes You Happy and the number 12 hit Respect Yourself. They hit number one in June 1972 with one of my all-time favorites, I'll Take You There. The Staples hit number one again in 1975 with Let's Do It Again. The group hit the top 40 eight times. The Staple Singers were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1999 and are also members of the Gospel Hall of Fame, and they received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Grammys in 2005. After her performing career ended, Yvonne was the road manager for her sister Mavis. Avicii, the Swedish DJ, musician, and producer, born Tim Bergling, died on April 20th at the age of 28. Known for remixes of electronic music, he made two appearances on the American pop charts. He hit number four in October 2013 with Wake Me Up, and six months later was at number 16 with Hey Brother. Bob DeRoe, a piano player and singer, died on April 23rd at 94 years of age. He played with Charlie Parker and Miles Davis, but is best known for creating songs for the Saturday morning ABC animated video series Schoolhouse Rock. His songs included Three is a Magic Number and Conjunction Junction. He also co-wrote Mel Torme's last Top 40 hit, Come Home Baby, which earned Torme two Grammy Award nominations. Doreau also produced a couple of albums for Spanky and Our Gang, who had hits like Sunday Will Never Be the Same and Like to Get to Know You. Gail Shepard of the Shepard Sisters died on May 7th. Gail, along with sisters Martha, Mary Lou, and Judith, were a popular girl group in the 1950s and 60s. They were on Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts and appeared numerous times on American Bandstand. The Shepherd sisters had one top 40 hit. That was 1957's Alone, Why Must I Be Alone? Gail Shepard later married Jimmy Miller, a record producer who worked with the Rolling Stones in the 1960s. Daryl, Ron, Yvonne, Avicii, Bob and Gail. Thanks for the music and the memories. Now back to our countdown. The song at number seven this week is by a surf rock band from Glendora, California. It's The Surfaris and Wipeout. The band members wrote the song, and it was initially released on two small labels early in 1963. In April, it was released nationally by Dot Records, and away it went driven by the iconic drum solo of Ron Wilson. Wipeout spent 10 weeks in the top 40 in 1963, seven of those weeks in the top 10, having peaked at number two on August 10th. The song reappeared on the charts three years later, this time lasting another 10 weeks in the top 40, peaking at number 16. Wipeout was released as a B-side, backing the intended single Surfer Joe. The song has maintained its popularity over the years, having been used numerous times in films such as Dirty Dancing, The Sandlot, and Toy Story 2. And in the summer of 1987, a version of Wipeout by Fat Boys and The Beach Boys was a number 12 hit on the Billboard charts. The original recording by the Safaris came in as the 14th most popular song on Billboard's year-end chart for 1963. Wipeout was the only song the Safaris ever placed in the top 40. Wipeout by the Safaris, at number 7, the week of August 28, 1963. There were ten goals of the 1963 March on Washington, and among these were a comprehensive civil rights bill that would end segregation in public accommodations, immediate desegregation of all public schools, protection of the right to vote, a federal law to outlaw employment discrimination, and a public works program to train and place unemployed workers. The march was not supported by all civil rights activists. Malcolm X, for one, then of the Nation of Islam, called it the farce on Washington. But the Kennedy administration cooperated with the organizers in planning the march, and cities such as Chicago and New York agreed to designate August 28th as Freedom Day, giving workers the day off. The organizers' goal was a crowd of at least 100,000 people. The rally was originally to be held at the U.S. Capitol building, but it was moved to the Lincoln Memorial to occur in front of the statue of Abraham Lincoln. The expensive sound system was sabotaged the day before the march and could not be repaired. Finally, after pleading with Attorney General Robert Kennedy, the U.S. Army Signal Corps was brought in to rebuild the sound system. Nearly 6,000 police were on duty the day of the march. The National Guard and military troops were positioned. No alcohol was allowed to be sold in Washington on the day of the march. Hospitals took steps to prepare for the potential of riot casualties. And a baseball doubleheader scheduled between the Minnesota Twins and the host Washington Senators was canceled. The federal government was ready with Operation Steep Hill if the march on Washington turned violent. And the people came. In the face of threats and bomb scares and the fear of violence. Not the 100,000 organizers had hoped for, No, in fact, 250,000 or more came, an estimated 20-25% to of whom were white. What were called freedom buses and freedom trains transported participants from all over the country. According to a book by Taylor Branch, more than 2,000 buses, 21 chartered trains, 10 chartered airliners, and countless cars came to Washington carrying participants for the march and rally. The day's events began at the Washington Monument with initial speeches, as well as performances by singers such as Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, and Peter Paul and Mary. It was Bob Dylan who wrote the song at number six on this week's countdown, and it's a recording by Peter Paul and Mary, Blowin' in the Wind. Dylan originally released the song on his 1963 album, The Freewheelin' Bob Dylan. The Chad Mitchell Trio, the vocal group which later gave a young John Denver his start, was the first act to cover this Dylan song. But their record company delayed releasing it, which enabled Peter, Paul, and Mary to get their version out. And it proved to not just be a huge hit for Peter, Paul, and Mary, it also gained international fame and remains associated with protest movements to this day. Blowing in the Wind spent 12 weeks in the top 40, seven of those in the top 10. It peaked a week earlier at number two, dropping four notches to number six this week. The song also reached number two on the cash box chart and was a number one adult contemporary hit. Blowin' in the Wind was one of the songs Peter, Paul, and Mary sang at the March on Washington, the other being Pete Seeger's If I Had a Hammer. Peter Yarrow, Paul Stuckey, and Mary Travers were put together in 1961 by Albert Grossman, who also happened to be Dylan's manager. They went on to record a number of Dylan's songs, including The Times They Are a-Changin'. Their 1962 debut album spent 10 months in the top 10 on the Billboard album charts, and it contained their first two top 40 hits, Lemon Tree, which reached number 35 in June 1962, and If I Had a Hammer, which hit number 10 in October of 62. Their next hit song was Puff the Magic Dragon, a number two smash in early 1963. They followed up that success with "Blowin' in the Wind. Peter, Paul, and Mary had 12 top 40 hits over their career. Six of their songs went top 10, and finally, in December 1969, they had a number one hit with Leave on a Jet Plane, a song written by John Denver. That also proved to be the last time Peter, Paul, and Mary would be in the top 40. Peter, Paul, and Mary broke up in 1970. They each pursued solo careers. Peter co-wrote and was the producer for the 1977 number one hit by Mary McGregor, Torn Between Two Lovers, and Paul wrote the ever-popular The Wedding Song, There Is Love. The trio reunited several times, often for political or social protest reasons. In fact, by 1981, they had reunited so often that they performed shows every year until Mary's death in 2009. Peter, Paul, and Mary became members of the Vocal Group Hall of Fame in 1999 and received the Sammy Kahn Lifetime Achievement Award from the Songwriters Hall of Fame. The song, Blown in the Wind, was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame and was ranked at number 14 in Rolling Stone's 2004 list of the 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. At number 10, the song that would go on to be the 13th most popular song of 1963, Blowin' in the Wind, by Peter, Paul, and Mary. In addition to the memories these great songs bring back, let's see what else was going on in the world in August 1963. Of course, we've been discussing the historic March on Washington in this episode of Memory and Top 40 Music. The Beatles performed for the final time at the Cavern Club in Liverpool, and they released the single She Loves You in the UK. The U.S., Britain, and the Soviet Union signed a nuclear test ban treaty, On August 7th, Jacqueline Kennedy became the first U.S. First Lady to give birth since Frances Cleveland in 1895. However, the infant, Patrick Bouvier Kennedy, died two days later. The English Great Train robbery took place on August 8th, netting the Bandits 2.6 million pounds or $7.3 million. Baseball great Stan Musial announced his plan to retire at the end of the season. James Meredith became the first black graduate from the University of Mississippi. The top box office draws in August 1963 were the movies Gidget Goes to Rome, Flipper, and Promises, Promises, starring Jane Mansfield. Boy, we're all over the spectrum with those movies. Notable births in August 1963 included James Hetfield of Metallica, Whitney Houston, Mohammed VI, King of Morocco, Downtown Julie Brown, and actor Michael Chiklis. Notable deaths in August 1963 included Tennessee Senator Estes Kefauver and civil rights activist and NAACP founder W.E.B. Du Bois. And President John F. Kennedy had only 86 days left to live. Now back to our countdown. At number five, holding in the same position as last week, is Judy's Turn to Cry by Leslie Gore. Leslie Gore was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1946 and grew up in Tenafly, New Jersey. She had several big hits as a teenager and became known as the voice of heartbreak songs. Shortly after turning 16, Gore made some demo recordings which wound up in the hands of Quincy Jones, who was then working at Mercury Records. Jones went on to become Gore's producer and mentor. Gore's first hit was It's My Party, which was released on the quick when Quincy Jones found out that Phil Spector and the Crystals were recording the same song. And right out of the shoot, Gore's first release went all the way to number one in June 1963 for two weeks. She followed that up with Judy's Turn to Cry, which was actually a sequel to It's My Party. Judy's Turn to Cry spent eight weeks in the top 40, peaking for two weeks at number five among its five weeks in the top ten. She followed up with songs like She's a Fool, That's the Way the Boys Are, and You Don't Own Me, a number two hit in February 1964. Gore also charted with what were among the first songs to come from Marvin Hamlish Sunshine, Lollipops, and Rainbows, which reached number 13 in August 1965, and California Nights, a number 16 hit in 1967. Leslie Gore placed a total of 11 songs in the top 40, four of which made the top 10. She later graduated from Sarah Lawrence College, majoring in British and American literature. In 1967, Gore appeared in two episodes of the Batman TV series, guest-starring as Pink Pussycat, an accomplice of Catwoman. Gore and her brother Michael wrote songs for the soundtrack of the 1980 hit movie, Fame. The two co-wrote Out Here On My Own, which was released as a single, reaching number 19 in November 1980 and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song. Michael Gore also had a hand in writing the title track for Fame, which won the Oscar for Best Original Song and was a number four hit in September 1980. Leslie Gore died of lung cancer in February 2015, but on August 28, 1963, She had the fifth-highest-rated song of the week, Judy's Turn to Cry. Turning our attention back to the March on Washington, after speeches and performances at the Washington Monument, the march commenced on its way to the Lincoln Memorial. The march actually began without its leaders, who were in a meeting with members of Congress. Marian Anderson was to have sung the National Anthem. That name may be familiar. Back in 1939, Marian Anderson was barred by the Daughters of the American Revolution from singing to an integrated audience at Constitution Hall in Washington. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt was then instrumental in helping to organize an open-air concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on Easter Sunday, 1939, attended by 75,000 people and broadcast to a radio audience in the millions. But Marian Anderson was unable to arrive at the March for Washington on time, and the anthem was sung instead by Camilla Williams. After her arrival, Miss Anderson did perform He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. The anthem was followed by an invocation by the Catholic Archbishop of Washington, Patrick O'Boyle. Then came a series of speakers, and there were performances, including by Mahalia Jackson. The last speaker of the day, prior to closing remarks and benediction, was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. It was this speech which became known as the I Have a Dream speech. It's the most discussed and best-remembered component of the March on Washington. Dr. King met with his advisors the day before the march to discuss the speech's contents. Dr. King ultimately wrote his speech the night before the march, not finishing his draft until after midnight. Dr. King used his advisors' input as well as ideas he'd espoused in previous speeches. He had used the I have a dream components previously, including in a June 1963 speech in Detroit, but he did not include it in the draft of his speech for the March on Washington. In his speech, Dr. King referred to Lincoln's signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, as well as to the signers of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and called for an end to racism and segregation. Partway through the speech, Mahalia Jackson called out, "Tell him about the dream, Martin." It was soon thereafter that King strayed from his prepared remarks and spoke ad lib, or more accurately, preached without notes. For the next few minutes, Dr. King spontaneously spoke the words that live to this day. King spoke of his dream of when his children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, and of his dream of when little black boys and girls in Alabama could hold hands with little white boys and girls as brothers and sisters. And when we let freedom ring, all peoples can join in the old African-American spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God almighty, we are free at last. Climbing up six spots this week all the way to number four is My Boyfriend's Back by The Angels. The Angels, an all-girl group from New Jersey, had some small local hits before their song Till reached number 14 in January 1962. Their next single, Cry Baby Cry, cracked the top 40, making it to number 38 that April. Then in 1963, the Angels, comprised of sisters Barbara and Phyllis Jiggs, along with newcomer Peggy Santillia, signed with Mercury Records. They recorded a demo version of My Boyfriend's Back for the Shirelles, but the record company liked the recording so much They released the Angels version as a single instead. Good move. My Boyfriend's Back debuted in the top 40 on August 10th at number 31. The next week it shot up to number 10. This week it is number 4, and next week would be the first of three weeks the song would enjoy at number 1. It would also hit the top spot on the R&B chart. My Boyfriend's Back would spend a total of nine weeks in the top 10. The Angels would only chart one more song in the top 40, that being I Adore Him, later in 1963. They kept recording, changing record labels, doing session work as backup singers, and even changing the group's name for a time due to a dispute over ownership. By the way, one of their backup singing jobs was on the 1966 number one hit by Lou Christie, Lightning Strikes. The Angels still occasionally perform today, and the group was inducted into the Vocal Group Hall of Fame in 2005. The song My Boyfriend's Back came about when one of its writers, Bob Feldman, overheard a high school girl turning down a boy. Not a bad start for the song which Billboard ranked at number 24 on its list of the 100 greatest girl group songs of all time. And it was the number 9 best-selling song of 1963. The Angels and My Boyfriend's Back at number 4 on August 28, 1963. Looking over the balance of the chart, four songs made their top 40 debut this week. The highest debuting song in the 40 is Blue Velvet by Bobby Vinton, which moved up from number 53 last week to number 23 this week. The song This Is All I Ask was at both number 72 and 73 on this week's Hot 100. That was Tony Bennett's version at 73 and Burl Ives' version at 72. Yes, Burl Ives was the same guy who voiced the snowman and narrated the Christmas television special Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But neither version of This Is All I Ask went very far. Ives' version moved up to number 67 next week, while Bennett's version got to number 70. They both fell off the charts the week after. Surfing was a popular topic this week. We already discussed The Safari's Wipeout at number 7. We also have Your Baby's Gone Surfing by Dwayne Eddy, debuting at number 96. Jack Nitschke's The Lonely Surfer at number 64. "Surfin' Hootin Annie by the Al Casey Combo is number 52. The Beach Boys and Surfer Girl are at number 18. And the number 15 song is Surf City by Jan and Dean. Also on the chart this week is Wayne Newton's very first top 40 hit, Donka Shane at number 13. Former number one songs in the chart this week are Easier Said Than Done by The Essex at number 27, Jan and Dean's Surf City, and So Much In Love by The Times at number 14. Future number one songs in this week's chart are Bobby Vinton's Blue Velvet and The Angels' My Boyfriend's Back. Next phase, new wave, dance craze, anyways, here's a song at number three. The number three song on this week's countdown moves up from number six. It's The Four Seasons and Candy Girl. The Four Seasons' prior release, Soon I'll Be Home Again, was the first time the group failed to make the top 40 since striking gold with their first number one hit, Sherry, in 1962. Candy Girl was the front of a two-sided hit. Marlena, the B-side, also made a top 40 appearance, getting to number 36 in August 1963. The Four Seasons appeared in the Top 40 five times in 1963. Walk Like a Man, Ain't That a Shame, Candy Girl, Marlena, and New Mexican Rose. Candy Girl was the sixth Top 40 appearance for the boys from New Jersey, and it was their first hit song not written by group member Bob Gaudio or producer Bob Crewe. It was written by Larry Santos. Santos would later have a Top 40 hit of his own with We Can't Hide It Anymore, which got to number 36 in 1976. He also found success writing jingles for the likes of Pan Am, Chevrolet, and Budweiser. Candy Girl was a ballad about the sweetness of a girl's love, and it enjoyed a 10-week top 40 run, peaking at number 3 this very week amidst its 5 weeks in the top 10. It appeared on the Four Seasons album, The Four Seasons Sing Ain't That a Shame, and 11 Others. The song was the last one the Four Seasons would place on the R&B charts. Frankie Valley, Bob Gaudio, Tommy DeVito, and Nick Massey. The Four Seasons at number three with Candy Girl. Many believe it was the March on Washington and the Kennedy administration's cooperation with the event's organizers that drew many African-American voters to the Democratic Party, though it cost the Democrats much support in southern states for years to follow. The March on Washington is credited with revitalizing the Civil Rights Movement drawing greater attention and support to its causes than ever before. It also spun enough forward momentum that led to the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But more violence was to follow. Just two weeks after the march, a bomb exploded at a Baptist church in Birmingham, Alabama, killing four young girls attending Sunday school. Less than five years later, Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis. As for the I Have a Dream speech, the Library of Congress added the speech to the United States National Recording Registry in 2002, and in 2003, the National Park Service dedicated a marble slab marking the spot where King made the speech. The Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in Washington opened on August 22, 2011, and was scheduled to be dedicated on the 48th anniversary of the I Have a Dream speech, but had to be rescheduled due to Hurricane Irene, which led to states of emergencies and hurricane warnings for 13 states and the District of Columbia. More recently, Time magazine included the speech as one of the 10 greatest orations in history, and Dr. King was named Time's Man of the Year for 1963. Media attention given to the March on Washington was staggering. There were more members of the media covering the march than had covered the Kennedy inauguration two and a half years earlier. CBS televised the entire event live. The song at number two on this week's countdown was inspired by letters a father received from his son complaining of a bad time he was having while away at summer camp. It's a novelty song by Alan Sherman, Hello Mutta, Hello Fada, a letter from camp. Who was the man behind this most unlikely hit song? It was a 38-year-old Chicago native who'd been discharged from the U.S. Army due to allergies. Alan Sherman wanted to become a songwriter, but when he failed to find success, he became a writer for comedians like Jackie Gleason and Joe E. Lewis, and then made his mark in television. He was co-creator of the CBS game show I've Got a Secret and served as the show's producer for seven years. He worked on other TV shows including Masquerade Party, Perry Presents, Your Surprise Package, and The Steve Allen Show. Sherman moved to Beverly Hills, and his next-door neighbor was Harpo Marks of the Marx Brothers— Marx invited Sherman to a party where he sang his song parodies for celebrities such as George Burns and Jack Benny. Sherman eventually signed with Warner Records. His first album, My Son the Folk Singer, became the fastest-selling album to that time, earning him an abundance of airtime. How popular did Sherman become? President Kennedy was heard singing Sherman's Sarah Jockman," a parody of Frere Jocka. Sherman's work capitalized heavily on his Jewish upbringing— His first three albums, My Son the Folk Singer, My Son the Celebrity, and My Son the Nut, all reached number one on the album charts. And from My Son the Nut came the massive hit single, Hello Mudda, Hello Fada." The song spent eight weeks in the top 40, six of those in the top 10, and three weeks at number two. As his son pleads in his letter home for his parents to take him home from camp, he writes, Now I don't want, this should scare ya, but my bunkmate... Has malaria? You remember? Jeffrey Hardy. They're about to organize a searching party. Give this one a listen. I always enjoyed it when Ted Brown on WNEW in New York would play it. We've included it on our companion Spotify playlist, along with a few other Alan Sherman gems. Sherman enjoyed the high life. He wrote his autobiography, guest hosted The Tonight Show, was involved with Bill Cosby's first three albums, and was in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Sherman placed one other song in the Top 40, 1965's Crazy Downtown, a parody of Petula Clark's Downtown. A combination of changing comedic tastes and his shift to more political satire led to underperforming albums, and Sherman was eventually released by Warner Brothers. This comment was made by Sherman's musical arranger, Lou Bush. If ever I saw success ruin a guy, it was Allen." His health began to deteriorate from alcoholism and weight gain, his marriage broke up, he had to go on unemployment, and Sherman died in 1973 when he was 48. A sad end for a guy who made millions smile. By the way, Weird Al Yankovic notes that Alan Sherman was one of his influences. Alan Sherman and Hello Mudda, Hello Fada in the number two spot this week. It's time for our second Memory Jogger feature, and in this installment of Memory Jogger, we'll explore what happened to the original copy of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. Do you know the name George Raveling? Much of what you're about to hear came from a January 2015 Sports Illustrated article by Seth Davis. George Raveling grew up in Washington, D.C. His father died when he was nine, and his mother suffered a breakdown and spent most of the rest of her life at St. Elizabeth's Psychiatric Hospital. A Catholic charity paid for George to attend St. Michael's Boarding school in Hoban Heights, Pennsylvania. There, George began playing basketball as a senior. He was the third leading scorer in the state. St. Joseph's University basketball coach Jack Ramsey approached George after an all-star game to see if he'd be interested in playing college ball. By the way, this was the same Jack Ramsey who coached the Portland Trailblazers to the NBA title in nineteen seventy seven and is now in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Raveling ultimately decided to attend Villanova University and is currently 12th on the Villanova all-time rebounds list. After his playing days were over, he became a part-time assistant coach at Villanova. Later, Raveling became an assistant to coach Lefty Drizel at the University of Maryland. Subsequently, from 1972 through 1994, he became head coach at Washington State, the University of Iowa, and finally, the University of Southern California. After he left coaching, Raveling was a director with Nike, wrote a couple of books on basketball, and worked as a television commentator for CBS Sports and Fox Sports. Raveling started attending Villanova University in 1956, and he followed the civil rights movement closely, taking particular note of Martin Luther King, having heard him speak about half a dozen times during George's college years. In August 1963, 26-year-old George Raveling decided to attend the March on Washington back in his old hometown. The day before the march, when walking around D.C., he and a friend were asked if they'd like to help out with security at the event. Raveling and his friend, Warren Wilson, learned they'd be working security on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. On the day of the march, Raveling was just steps away from Dr. King during the now-famous speech. After King concluded, he turned to leave, and Raveling asked Dr. King if he could have the copy Dr. King had in his hand, the original copy of the now-famous speech. King handed the papers to Raveling, who took them home and put them inside the front cover of a book. It was Harry Truman's autobiography, which the former president had autographed for Raveling. The speech remained in that book for more than 20 years, before Raveling pulled it out to show a reporter for the Cedar Rapids Gazette named Bob Denny, who was working on a book about Raveling as the first black basketball coach at the University of Iowa. Denny had the speech treated and framed for Raveling. Raveling displayed the framed speech for a few years on his office wall and then in his home, later moving it to a bank vault for safekeeping. He's been offered $3 million for the document, but Raveling won't sell it. There have been talks with museums and universities and other organizations about finding a home to display this original copy of what became the I Have a Dream speech. But realize, the original copy of that speech does not contain the words, I Have a Dream. Before we get to the song which held on to the number one position for a third consecutive week, let's do a quick review. The song at number 10 was Denise by Randy and the Rainbows. Number nine, You're the Devil in Disguise by Elvis Presley. Number eight, "More" by Kai Winding and his orchestra. At number seven, The Safaris and Wipeout. Peter, Paul, and Mary had the number six song, Blowin' in the Wind. Teenager Leslie Gore was at number five with Judy's Turn to Cry. The Angels were at number four with My Boyfriend's Back. Number three is Candy Girl by The Four Seasons. At number two, Hello, Mudda, Hello, Fada by Alan Sherman. And the number one song on August 28, 1963, for the third week in a row, is another teenager, this one even younger than Leslie Gore. In fact, he remains to this day the youngest solo artist to ever top the chart. It's 13-year-old Little Stevie Wonder and his first smash hit, Fingertips. Fingertips was a live recording done on a performance of the Motortown Review at Chicago's Regal Theater. The song had originally been an instrumental recording on Wonder's first studio album, The Jazz Soul of Little Stevie. A few episodes ago, we talked about the first Motown song to reach number one on the pop charts. That was Please, Mr. Postman by The Marvelettes. Well, Fingertips was the second Motown single to accomplish the feat. And the single success propelled Little Stevie's album to the top of the album charts. Wonder was also the youngest to have a number one album. By the way this was the last album to refer to the singer as Little. Afterwards, and to this day, he's just playing Stevie Wonder. I know you've heard this song, but listen closely to the track on our companion playlist for this episode of Memory and Top 40 Music. To begin with, Fingertips was released as a two-part single. It was the second part, the B-side, that became the hit. Just about two minutes and five seconds into the recording, the song ends, and the MC is heard saying, let's hear it for a little Stevie Wonder and encouraging Stevie to take a bow. Exit the young performer, right? Well, not on this night. Stevie called an audible and resumed his performance. The band members had even begun switching out for the next act. In the Motortown review, the Marvelettes usually followed little Stevie. In fact, if you listen closely enough, you can hear one of the musicians asking, what key, what key? That occurs at about the 2 minute 23 second mark. By the way, Marvin Gaye played drums on the song. Fingertips was the first Stevie Wonder release to make the charts. It had a 12-week top 40 run, spending 7 weeks in the top 10, and of course, those 3 weeks at number 1. It would be the 7th most popular song of 1963. This was the last of its 3 weeks atop the charts. It would be 10 years before Stevie Wonder's next number 1, that being 1973's Superstition. But he'd then go on to hit number 1 6 more times with... You Are the Sunshine of My Life, You Haven't Done Nothing, I Wish, Ebony and Ivory with Paul McCartney, I Just called to Say I Love You, and Part-Time Lover. Wonder would appear in the top 40 a remarkable 47 times. 27 of those records would go top 10, including his eight number one hits. He topped the r and singles chart 20 times, including with a cover of "Blowin' in the Wind in 1966. Wonder is a 25-time Grammy Award winner. Wonder was also active in the effort to make Martin Luther King's birthday a national holiday. Stevie is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame. He won an Academy Award for I Just Called to Say I Love You from the film The Woman in Red. He was named a United Nations Messenger of Peace, was awarded a Presidential Medal of Freedom, and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Civil Rights Museum. Though blind from shortly after birth, Stevie Wonder maximized his gift for music to make himself a worldwide success. The fabulous little Stevie Wonder with a number one song on August 28, 1963, Fingertips. And those were the top 10 songs for August 28, 1963, and the story of the historic March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, which occurred on that date. I hope you enjoyed our countdown and our telling of the March on Washington story. What did you hear in this episode that brought back a memory? Please share it. Send a note to memory at spokenjoe.com. Episodes of Memory and Top 40 Music are available on Radio Public, iTunes, and Stitcher. Give us a rating and some feedback while you're there, and please subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and don't forget, listen to this episode's companion playlist on Spotify. Thanks for listening to Memory and Top 40 Music. I'm Spoken Joe.